0: If you've been with us this past month, we've been going over our Advent series called Recapturing the Wonders of Christmas. And uh, in this series, every week, we've been highlighting a specific wonder of the coming of Jesus Christ. The first Sunday, we talked about the wonder of God's timing and saw how Jesus' entrance into this world came with jaw-dropping precision. The second Sunday, we talked about the wonder of Emmanuel as we explored the beauty of Jesus's divinity. The third Sunday, we looked at the wonder of the incarnation and focused and uncovered the treasures of Jesus' humanity. Last Sunday, Pastor Lewis talked about the wonder of Jesus' righteousness and how Jesus' salvation Uh, satisfies that deep, innate longing we all have to be right, to belong at God's table. Well, today we're going to finish up by focusing on the wonder of God's love. And to do that, we are going to take a look at easily the most famous verse in the entire Bible, the most memorized, recognized, publicized verse in Scripture—one that can be found in football stadiums, one could that that could be seen in Tim Tebow's eye black, one that can be found underneath in and out cups—and what verse is this? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the fact that this is the most recognized verse is well-deserved. Why? Because in this one verse, it summarizes and unpacks the profound message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if there's one verse you want to commit to memory, if there's one verse you want to share with someone who is new to Christianity, I can't think of a better verse than this. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, if there's a problem with this verse, it's the fact that it's too familiar for us. For many of us, the moment we hear the refrain, John 3 16, we tune out. I used to pastor at a church that was located right next to a train station. And so I'll be counseling a couple in in my office, and in the middle of the session, all of a sudden, you'll see. this loud rumbling, and my office literally shaking, and the couple is looking at me, wondering, do I need to get under your desk right now? Is this an earthquake? But for me, I just continue teaching and counseling, as if... Everything is normal. Why? Because the passing of the train became background noise to me. And in the same way, you and I hear John 3 16 so much, it could become background noise to us. And so, my hope and prayer this morning is to unpack this famous verse for you in the hopes that the Spirit might enable you to experience fresh the beauty and wonder of God's love. As if you're hearing this verse for the first time. And so for those of you who are familiar with it, I want you to suspend your past history with it and pretend this is your first time looking at this verse. The first thing I want to do is direct your attention to one of the shortest words of this verse. And that's the word, so. For God so loved the world. What does so mean? When I say I love you so much, or I am so full, or if you've been to the beach recently, those waves are so big, how is so being used? so is a word that heightens degree. It serves as emphasis. It maximizes magnitude. And so John wants us to know that God's love is no ordinary love. It it wasn't satisfactory for him to simply state, "'For God loved the world.'" Neither does he say, for God kind of loved the world or sort of loved the world. No, for John, for God so loved the world. God's love is deep, passionate, and intense. It's profound and weighty. It's a so kind of love. And for the remainder of this verse, John then proceeds to explain Why God's love is a so kind of love. And these reasons can be memorized by three short words who, what, and how. Who, what, and how underpin and answer why God's love is so big. The first reason why this is a so kind of love is because of who God loves. John tells us, for God so loved the world. Now, what does he mean by world? At first blush, a lot of us assume that he's using the world to, to communicate to us the scope of God's love. That is, for God loved the entire world. It's showing how many people he loves. But I don't know if that's what John is trying to say to us. Yes, there are other parts of Scripture that... Explain to us that God's favor and love extends to the entire world. We have the doctrine of common grace that teaches us that God's favor is showered upon believers and non-believers alike, but I don't think that's what John is trying to say here in John 3.16. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, if ever you're confused about a word or a verse, the first tool in our arsenal that we should look to is context. And we're going to look at the context here shortly, but I want to add another tool to your, uh, uh, your, your tool bag when it comes to understanding a word. Another tool that we can utilize to help us understand the meaning of a word is by seeing how the biblical author uses the same exact word in another part of his writing. Because the logic is if he uses a word this way over here, then there's a good chance he's using the same word the same way here. It's not always true, but it can be true, it's helpful. And so how does John use world in other parts of his writings? Well, if you look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he writes this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so is world being used in terms of scope? Don't love the world? Don't love anyone in the world? Of course not. That would directly go against the royal law, which tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. John is not saying don't love people in the world. Rather, he's using world in an ethical sense, isn't he? Don't love worldliness, don't be like the world who chase after fame and power, who chase after wealth and prosperity. Don't be worldly is the message of 1 John chapter 2. And so if John uses world in an ethical sense in 1 John chapter 2, perhaps he's using it the same way here in John 3.16 in that, what, what John is saying is, for God so loved the world, in, uh, in other words, God's love is so great because those he loves are worldly, are corrupted by sin, are hostile against God. The world that God loves is fallen, and they've rejected God You see, it's one thing to love someone who loves you. It's quite another to love someone who hates you. And that's what God is doing. This ethical understanding of the word world actually fits the immediate context. The remainder of the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This world that God loves is a world that is headed towards. Perishment. It's a world headed towards judgment and destruction and ruin. This is further underscored by what John says two verses later in John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. And so because this world hates God, because this world is hostile towards God, it's a world headed towards perishment. It's a world that already stands under condemnation. That's the nature of the world that God loves. It's a world that deserves his judgment. This is why it's a so kind of love. God gives the world the very opposite of what it deserves. And so when you consider how broken and corrupt and antagonistic and depraved the world is, it helps you appreciate the wonder of his love. So that's the first reason, who God loves. This now leads us to the second reason why God's love is a so kind of love. After telling us who God loves, John proceeds to explain what God's love costs what his love looks like. If you think about it, there are many ways you and I can express love. Gary Chapman has sold millions of books with the title, Five Love Languages. Married couples are familiar with it. We know that love can be expressed through the mediums of Acts of service, words of affirmation, spending time, physical touch, and gifts. There's so many different ways you and I can express our love for one another. And so after telling us that God so loved the world, if you're hearing us this verse for the first time, your brain begins to populate ways which God can love us. And so perhaps you're thinking, for God so loved the world, he gave us good food, good friends, family. He gave us music and art. He gave us nature and beauty. You and I can fill in the blanks with the myriads of blessings that could express God's love toward us. But perhaps those of us who are a little more astute, who understand the nature of the word world here, might be saying, for God so loved the world, he gave us a second chance. For God so loved the world, he wiped the slate clean and is giving me the opportunity to do a do-over. Perhaps that's why some of you are here this morning that before the year ends and the new year begins, you recognize, you know what, 2023 was not lived well. I'm going to start afresh. I'm going to go to church because I want God to wipe my, cl- my, my slate clean. But to our shock and amazement, none of our answers come even close to what God has in mind. To our shock and amazement, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. He gave His one and only Son. Let me ask you, what is the most precious, most valuable earthly blessing you have in this life. Parents, is it not our children? Is there anything more precious than our own children? Is there anything we would not sell and give up for our children? We would gladly sell everything we own if we could guarantee and secure the well-being of our children, right? Yet here is God giving us that which is most precious to him. And John further delineates the fact that it's not like God is giving one son among thousands of sons. No, God the Father is giving His one and only Son. He has one Son, and that Son He gives to us. And what makes this even more staggering is when you understand the nature of the word give here, because by the time you finish reading the Gospel of John, you realize that giving His Son is essentially a death sentence. To give his son is to deliver his son. To deliver his son is to sacrifice his son. To sacrifice his son is to crucify his son. And so the gift, the way God expresses his love to us, is through the crucifixion of his one and only son. And so naturally we think, why so extreme? Why such a gruesome gift? Why, why such drastic measures? God, I never asked for this. I'd be happy with the million dollars. I'd be happy with a cure to cancer. There are so many other blessings you could have chosen. Why give us the crucifixion of your son? But you see, the reason why it's such an extreme expression is because that's the only way for God to love us. It's the only way. He can love us. Because you see, what stands in the way of God's love towards us is our sinfulness. As we learned before, we are by nature antagonistic against God, hostile towards Him. We reject His ways. And because of our sin, even if God wanted to, He can't just love us without doing anything. He can't just brush our sins under the rug. He can't just wipe our slate clean like a genie. He can't ignore our sin. Why? Because the Because the Bible makes super clear that God is indisputably holy, pure, and righteous. And because he's holy, pure, and righteous, he cannot love that which is unholy, impure, and unrighteous. Without compromising his own being. This is why the crucifixion of God's one and only Son is the only way for God to love us, because in the death of the holy, pure, and righteous God, the unholy, the impure, the unrighteous can become pure and clean and loved by God. Jesus on the cross took our perishment, took our condemnation so that we who deserve God's wrath may only know and experience God's love forever. That's the gospel. This is why this is a so kind of love, not only because of who God's who God loves, but also because of what it would cost. It would cost him the life of his one and only son. Now allow me to give you an illustration to help you really grasp the dynamics that are at play in this verse. You see, in order for us to truly savor the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to see the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. The definitions of these three terms needs to be clear in our minds. What is justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace, getting the opposite of what you deserve. And so let's say one day you're walking out of the office towards the parking lot, towards your car, where to your horror, you see your car keyed all the way from hood to trunk. Not only that, you see the window bashed in and immediately your face turns red with rage. How dare someone vandalize my car? But then you see a shadow moving inside the car. And you realize that this is a crime that is in process right then and there. And so you utilize your world-class jiu-jitsu skills. You apprehend the, the thief, and you tie him up. And you discover it's a teenage boy. And it's in that moment where you have a choice. You can apply justice, mercy, or grace. What does justice look like? Calling the cops, filing a police report, making the boy pay for all of the damages. That's justice. Nothing wrong with justice. God is a God of justice. In certain situations, justice is what's most glorifying to God. Of course, you and I are calling for justice when we are the victims of injustice. But when we are the offender, we tend to cry for leniency. Many years ago, as I was driving away from church, I was uh, waiting at that traffic circle as there was a car uh, making its uh, way around, uh, around the roundabout. And in that moment, I decided to look at my phone. And to my surprise, I got a text, and it read, Tiss, tiss, tiss. I looked up, I looked to the left, and behold, it was our own Officer Quinn. And he was looking at me like this. And I froze. And I was like, oh my gosh, right? This is right after church, right? And in that moment, I was like, don't give me justice, give me leniency. How many of us, the last time we got pulled over by the cops, told the cops, can you please give me the maximum penalty allowable? None of us. The second option is mercy. Mercy is not giving what they deserve. So what does mercy look like? It's telling the teenager, you know what? I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to call the cops. You don't have to pay for the damages. You can go. You're free. In a world as litigious as ours, where many are demanding justice and payment for penalties and sins, committed, mercy is refreshing, is it not? Mercy will surprise this teenager. Really? Are you sure? Will mercy change the boy's heart? Maybe. Maybe not. Perhaps he might go back to his car robbing ways. And yet, mercy is still surprising. The other option is grace, getting the opposite of what you deserve. What does grace look like in this situation? Grace is handing over the keys. Here, the car is yours. Go repair. The paint, repair the window, send me the receipt, I'll pay for them. Grace is inviting the boy over to your home. Let me cook you a meal. Grace is adopting the boy as a son. Grace is writing the boy's name into your will. Grace is stunning. Grace is staggering. Grace is scandalous. You give grace and there's a good chance your parents might say to you, you're crazy, you're a fool. How can you write him into your will? How can you treat him like family? You're being reckless. And yet grace is at the heart of John 3.16. God doesn't give us justice. God doesn't simply give us mercy. He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Instead of condemning us as he should, he sends his one and only son to be condemned for us so that we might become adopted into his family forever. This is why we sing amazing grace. Not mediocre grace, not expected grace, but jaw-dropping, electrifying grace. When you experience grace, your life changes. And so if you are a believer this morning, let me remind you Grace is what God has done for you. Let me remind you that you are supremely blessed. You are infinitely loved. You are beautifully treasured. God has given his son for you so that you might be his own and inherit heaven For eternity. This gospel should floor you. This gospel should change you. And yet I'm still not done. I haven't mentioned the third and final reason why this is a so kind of love. In addition to telling us who God loves and what God's love looks like. He ends by telling us how we receive this love. For the uninitiated, for those reading this verse for the first time, the assumption is that such an extravagant gift, the gift of a crucified, only begotten Son, would only be given to a special class of people, right? A gift that great, that costly, that excellent and extreme should only be given to those who deserve such a gift, to those who demonstrate moral and spiritual excellence. After all, God wouldn't sacrifice his son for just anybody No, any reasonable-minded person would extend such a gift to those who are disciplined, devoted, and dedicated to those whose lives are exemplary, filled with charity, compassion, and love to the best people of humanity. But to our shock and amazement, John 3.16 says that whoever... Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, the only condition is faith. Believe in Jesus, that's all you have to do. Trust in Jesus. Look to him alone for your salvation. If you believe in Jesus, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will have eternal life. And when John says whoever, he means whoever. It's extended to anyone, whoever you are, whatever you've done. Nothing you've ever done in the past disqualifies you from this invitation. Nothing you've experienced eliminates you. If you believe in Jesus, whoever, whatever you've done, you will have eternal life. One of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Give a warning. It begins somewhat ominous, but ends with so much hope. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And at this, everyone's like, oh no. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Whoever believes, whether you are sexually immoral, an idolater, an adulterer, whether you're a thief, greedy, or a drunkard, you can receive the gift of eternal life. You can be washed, justified, and sanctified. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Now do you see why this is a so kind of love? This love is given to whoever believes. This love is so wondrous, so staggering, that it has the power to change our lives forever. And it is this gospel that explains why we are commissioning Grace Church this morning, because there are thousands of Chinese people who have yet to hear this wonderful invitation of God's love. And this gospel explains why Christians ought to be the most gracious people of all. As recipients of God's grace, he now calls us to be vessels and instruments of grace. In a world that often demands for justice as Christians, what sets us apart is that we can actually extend grace to others. Every day, you and I will be given opportunities to display grace. Every day, people sin against us in small or big ways. Don't get me wrong. In certain situations, justice or mercy might be the most appropriate, most glorifying response. But in other situations, grace is the most sublime expression of our identity as sons and daughters of God. Instead of retaliating in kind, perhaps God might be leading us to return evil with good, to bless those who persecute you, to give the person the shirt off your back. Dear friends, this is the sweet gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the heartbeat of new life. This is why we behold, belong, become, and bless. And may this guide us into the new year. May we savor afresh the wonder of his love for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your love is staggering, your love is scandalous, your love seems reckless. Why you would love us to this extent, we cannot fathom, it comes totally unexpected and yet here we are, invited to the table, lavished by your love, washed clean by your blood. Pray, Father, that this reality, more than any other identity we might have, would reign supreme as we turn the page to 2024. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins, for being condemned on our behalf. Help us now to exhibit your grace to others around us, especially those who sin against us.